Mm-hmm. Um, can you just say some things so I can see your levels? Oh, wow, levels. So this is all, this might be the most like professional thing I've ever done. Living the dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi everyone, it's Dave here and what you're about to hear is the first part of a two-part series that I recorded with good friend and really interesting and exciting feminist scholar and activist Tanya Cerizier. Both episodes were recorded at the same time. We recorded about an hour and 40 or 50 minutes and then I decided to break it into two. And the conversation is looking at kind of the feminist politics around... Uh, intimate or sexual violence, how we understand Me Too and questions of representation, and locating those in the historical unfolding of uh, feminist politics, and also uh, have a bit of a chat about Tanya's critique of notions of consent, and it's really, really interesting stuff. Though I also understand that this um, subject matter might be the kind of thing that listeners might find particularly too distressing so i just wanted to give you a heads up if that's you and you can make a decision if this is the kind of show you want to listen to or not also i did just want to let people know that there are a few uncomfortable moments in the uh, episode where uh, i didn't mute my mic and you can hear my breathing it's kind of mortifyingly embarrassing in my defense my sinuses aren't great at the moment however my partner said that it's probably more got to do with the fact that even when I'm listening, I'm getting ready to say something. All right, so this is part one. I hope you enjoy it. Hi everyone, you are listening to Living the Dream and you're joining me, Dave, and you can follow me on Twitter at With Sober Senses. John's not here tonight, he's off playing trivia, but I'm very excited because we have a very special guest, Tanya Srizier. How are you, Tanya? Oh, I'm very well, thank you, and, uh, especially after that introduction, feeling oh, very special. Well, actually, I'm, I'm really excited about, about uh, tonight's podcast. So, Tanya, you're a lecturer at Burbeck, is that correct? Birkbeck with a K. Birkbeck. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't even get that right. Um, (laughs) Birkbeck, which is in London. Um, Tanya may be known to some listeners. Tanya uh, is originally from Australia and has a long history as a really important contributor to feminist and queer thought and politics in Australia and is also a really good friend, which I haven't chatted to for ages, so I'm super excited. And uh, Tanya, your work has kind of historically, has looked at kind of feminist politics around sexual violence and rape and representation. Is that a good summary? Yep, yep, yep. Also, I was kind of thinking like um, 
before we get started, I was trying to get like the language right. Like, is there, you know, when, when we're talking about this kind of politics, is does it matter if we use terms like rape or intimate violence or gendered violence? Like, what's kind of appropriate in, to kind of even fra- start framing the conversation? Well, all right, to be honest, um, I am a bit more lax about those questions than some people. So um, some people will tell you it's very important which words you use. Um, to me, it's probably less so. And, of course, there's a whole other discussion around, you know, victim, survivor, complainant, those kinds of things. Um, I know we're going to talk later about Me Too. Um, I think that's an example where which shows, I guess, the kind of usefulness of both keeping things a little bit looser and having some specificity because in terms of Me Too, you have, you know, a whole lot of speech, a whole lot of speech act, a whole lot of politics around what is generally framed as kind of sexual violence, gendered violence, or even sometimes sexual assault. But if you talk specifically, you're talking about, you know, and this has been part of the kind of backlash conversation too, you're talking about a whole range of experiences, you know, that range from things like, sexual harassment at work to actually, you know, experiences of rape or sexual violence. And so rather, I think, than focusing on the terminology, there's, there is a political question that underlines it, which is when is it important or useful to bring out the connections between those things, to look at them structurally and to say, you know, there are connections, and when is it important to... Um, as a lot of kind of media commentators are talking about it, preserve distinctions or the ability to make distinctions. And so um, in terms of my work, kind of in my PhD and in what I mainly write on, I've predominantly focused on rape itself. And again, when you're talking about that, there's also legal questions, you know, because since the 1980s and rape law reform, in a lot of jurisdictions, there isn't a crime of rape as such anymore. There's different degrees of sexual assault. In other jurisdictions, for instance, I'm in England now, there is still a crime of rape here and it's different to sexual assault. So it depends on the context as well. Obviously, legally, it makes a big difference what you're talking about. Um, Socially and politically, I think that Sometimes it's important to draw distinctions and sometimes it is important to be able to use those kind of more general terms like gendered and sexual violence. It's really fascinating. I guess it's like, you know, what's at stake you mm. know, in these kind of debates? Like to, to start with, what's, it, what's at stake in the debates about how we talk about it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I mean, and you see that a lot with... Um, you know, with some of the arguments around Me Too, for instance, where, um, I mean, obviously the big one is that kind of the Aziz Ansari case. Um, and we don't have to talk about that particularly, but, you know, one of the things that a lot of people said around that, you know, was this is not illegal, it's not rape, it doesn't meet the legal definition of sexual harassment, it's not to do with work. And so, naming things can be a way of drawing boundaries around things and can be a way actually of saying you should not be speaking about this now in this context, in this framing, you know, but it can also be, it can also be necessary in the sense that, you know, we're both talking about a very kind of broad social phenomenon that, you know, 
is ubiquitous that many people experience and we are talking about people's actual you know individual and specific experiences and they can be very very different um and so i think yeah we need so (laughs) in answer to your original question i mean what i try to do is i guess move between those terms in a way that kind of acknowledges and is respectful of that kind of distinction and the need to do both things um other people will be a lot more kind of um strict i suppose about the terminology they use but to me i think there's there's actually a reason that we have so many words it's not and sometimes as i say sometimes it can be a bit muddying of the waters but it's actually i think um you know something that results from the social fact that we're often talking about many different things and talking on many different levels when we talk about sexual violence. And in, there's a lot of many's here. I was about to say in many ways we, we do actually need to do that, but we need to be conscious of the fact that we're doing it as well. I think this is kind of like rocketed right to why I wanted to talk to you about this because like Me Too has been like this really incredible phenomena, which I think for me has like... Um, raise a lot of questions I can't really solve in my own mind like so mm. so like in like to my my point of view it's like well this seems on somehow to be like a really noticeable change in about how we talk about sexual violence in that there's now a kind of general acknowledgement that this is a, um, a a widespread social phenomena it's being talked about on the level of the mass media it's been largely supported by um the mass media and social power or society on a whole, the people who have been identified as perpetrators are people often at the top of the social hierarchy. And like, and yet at the same time, like the confusion for me is like, how much is this identifying how much sexual violence sits within broader patterns of gender and how much does it ignore it? And is it actually like, the thing that I guess like is challenging to my established ideas about what I think social movements or social struggles look like is that it hasn't involved kind of political organisation or political activity as I classically think of and it's been supported by the social structure so for me it's like is this a what's going on like I can't really kind of um, get my head around it if that makes sense and also I guess at the same time it's been patterned with an idea that all these issues can be solved if we take up a model of consent, which I want to talk about later as well. But I think like that's for me really kind of some of the stakes, if that makes sense, of what I want to kind of like see if we can puzzle out. <laughs> well, I think, I, think, I think we could talk about yeah. it. Um, whether or not we can puzzle it out is another question. Um, so I suppose, you know, I suppose what I should say is obviously talking about any of these issues right now is always talking about me too, in a sense. I mean, um, that might be an overstatement, but I think broadly it's true. It's kind of there as a specter. And what is difficult, I think, is that we can, you know, we can point to, we can guess, but there's a lot that we can't say, I think, at the moment about me too. Um, Because, you know, as you even just talking then, it involves a whole a whole lot of things. And one of the ways that I find kind of useful to think about it is there's a kind of, there's a media studies scholar, John Fisk, and he talks about, um, he talks about media events, right? And he says, you know, it's, um, it's all of that kind of cultural study stuff, but he says in a mass mediated society, 
to really matter, something has to be in a way a media event. And I mean, Me Too is many different things, but it's clearly, you know, it is a media event. It's a mediatized event. And what he says about them is he says that big media events are kind of like when you've got all these, he has this whole, he takes it a bit far, but this kind of river metaphor. And he says, you've got all these kind of currents and cross currents and undercurrents under the surface and rapids and things, and they bubble up in these media events. And it's really difficult to pull out everything that's going on, you know, just by looking at what's at the surface. And all you can kind of do is really try to get in a way at what's under the surface. I mean, you know, so just for instance, um, you talked about social structures and the fact that, you know, this is in many ways being supported, like being supported, you know, by very prominent politicians, being supported by big media organizations. And, I mean, that's a bigger question, I think, about feminist politics generally that this plays into, but which a lot of kind of feminist critical scholars over the last few years have been debating and trying to deal with is that, you know, well, we, you know, as someone who considers themselves a feminist activist and scholar, we haven't been purely oppositional, you know, for a very long time. You know, there's whole, you know, sections of government bureaucracy that are built around, you know, some of principles of feminist analysis. I mean, there's things like rape law reform. There are changes in the way people talk and think about gender. You know, there's sexual harassment things. And to be for the things that feminism is for, particularly when it comes to gendered violence, is not to be particularly oppositional. I mean, we live, you know, we live in a society where apart from really kind of, you know, some very dark subsections of the internet, you know, no one is for sexual harassment or no one really believes that it doesn't happen. I mean, when you get into what people mean by it and what people want it to mean, that's a whole nother question. But, you know, particularly, you know, my work where I talk about sexual assault and rape, you know, everybody is against that at a broad kind of level, you know, everyone from very right-wing commentators to the left, but the devil's in the details in a way. So I think that's also what makes something like Me Too tricky is sorting out what's new, sorting out what people mean, sorting out on what basis and to what extent, you know, it's supported. And beyond that, actually trying to say, you know, how and under what circumstances can and could this make political change? And, you know, that question about politics as well, you know, particularly even in the sense that, um, in some ways it seemed to be kind of transnational and global and it is in some ways, but it's obviously needs to have different manifestations at a local level as well. So, um, yeah, so this is, this is, um, why hopefully you won't find the podcast frustrating because I actually think that to really understand this, we need to, we need to take a step back. We need to say, you know, this is really complex and really complicated and there's a lot of these kind of undercurrents and cross currents at work and it's very difficult to kind of pull it out you know so it's been funny for me in the last kind of six months I guess is um you know right from when it first happened I would see people at work or they'd be like oh well you'll have a lot to say about this and I was just like well in some ways I feel like you know I do but I also, in terms of anything definitive, have very little to say because it's, you know, it's so complex and it could go in so many different ways and it's just still happening and it involves so many different kind of elements of politics that it's actually very difficult, I think, to kind of puzzle it out.
as you say. But um, now, yeah. Look, look, I, I agree. I, I, that that doesn't um, I I think we can accept maybe that it's not going to be like a solvable thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, it is. I like. I, I guess I um, I'm interested in if we are seeing so, like something actually change something new and something different or is this a kind of like continuation of public debates we've had around sexual violence before and i was wondering if you could um talk about your historical work about um how i guess since the 70s feminist activists and feminist thought have tried to talk about sexual violence and rape What's their thinking been behind that and how effective that has been in being able to shape or fit in with, um, you know, the broader social structures around gender? Okay, yes. <laughs> They're yes, all the easy questions. Kind of easy, limited <laughs> questions. Um, well, that's actually, I mean, that's actually what my book, that we were talking about this before we started, that I'm in the process of finishing if anyone from my publishers listening very close to finishing off at the moment, um, is trying to map that out and trying to think about the effects. And, um, you know, on the one hand, and this, and it's not only me that says this, I mean, rape and sexual violence, I think, and, you know, it's because I work on it, is in some ways, I think, the great kind of paradox of feminist politics I mean it's the area in which arguably um, feminism has had the most impact in terms of things like law reform even in terms of things like cultural change the way that people think and talk about sexual violence um, at a broad level but on the other hand it's an area in which feminism struggles to have any impact. I mean, it's notoriously difficult to get prevalence figures for sexual violence, but, I mean, one of the things that we don't think has happened in the last 50 years is that rates of rape or sexual assault, you know, in countries, if we just think about the UK and Australia, have gone down. Um, you know, we've seen far more changes to people's attitudes generally than we have in specific cases. And so what I mean about that is it's it's quite interesting you know I don't do this but when people who do survey people do you know if you give a bunch of people a set of very general statements about rape and sexual violence you know they come out sounding reasonably progressive generally if you show them a particular case and particularly you know a case that involves um, a victim or a complainant who, you know, has been drinking or was flirting or any of those kind of classic things, suddenly their views look a lot worse. So there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of paradox and contradiction there. So that's just to speak very generally. I mean, there's a book, Rose Corrigan, who's an American author, uh, writes about rape and she talks and feminism and she talks about what she calls the failure of success. You know, that we need to think about feminist politics around sexual violence in terms of both failure and success at the same time. And I think that's very important. I, so got, to come back. Yeah, I, like, just to interrupt on that, because I want to say this before I forget this point. I guess this is the other thing that, like, in the back of my head, I've been kind of concerned about is that part of the debate at the moment seems to be posing like there's a really easy solution that mm. all we need to do is like kind of change the laws around um, enthusiastic consent and make sure all teenagers go through consent training 
and we can pretty much have the society that we currently have and we'll mm. we'll have somehow changed rape culture and have a different form of sexual dynamic between people. And Oh uh, yes, yes. And and, and, <laughs> yes. And, like, and so it's like that got me thinking about, you know, particularly when I was reading your work, where okay, so we have this long history of struggles around gender and sexual violence. What kind of impact has that really had? And obviously I don't want to fall into some kind of like biological essentialism just to say this will always be with us so also like how do we explain that failure if that makes sense too yeah i mean on all right on on the question of biological essentialism one thing i think that is very clear is that um rape and sexual violence is a social fact you know and by that i mean it's bound up in societies and there's been a lot of really interesting work done on this, particularly by feminist anthropologists. And there are differences in not only kind of rates of sexual violence, you know, but the way that it happens, all kinds of things between different societies and different cultures and at different times. So I think that one thing, you know, is we don't need to go back to that kind of, you know, 1970s um Susan Brown Miller, you know, the problem is the penis is a weapon and as long as the penis is a weapon, men will continue to use it as a weapon. I think, you know, that's not really the issue. Um, the question is more, I think, is that actually thinking about rape and sexual violence as a social fact means that, you know, as you were kind of hinting towards, it's very bound up in all kinds of norms around sexuality around gender and there's nothing you've kind of touched on there's nothing that um frustrates me more than when you talk to people and they have this really kind of it's all very simple attitude and we just think well no I mean it's not very simple you know on the it's simple in the sense that you know you can have a very kind of broad brushstrokes idea about what you want in terms of you want a world without rape or you want a world without sexual violence. But, um, you know, and if you want, we can talk specifically about enthusiastic consent and, you know, these kinds of trainings and laws, but they're not solutions. They're not simple solutions. And, um, you know, and that's if one thing that looking at kind of, you know, rape law reform, looking at work on sex education that's been done, and some of it's very good, um, but what it shows is that none of this is simple. You know, it's not a matter of outlawing things and, you know, telling people what to do. And there's an interesting thing, and this is something that um, you also come across here, is sometimes I think when people say this and they imagine this kind of, you know, a training and they're like, oh, it's very simple, you know, and you see people blogging about it or whatever. There's actually a kind of a strange kind of politics where I think often the world is kind of divided into, you know, people who have the solutions and see the solutions and people who don't have the solutions, you know. So if only we could get those people who don't have the solutions. And they're often imagined in a particular way, you know, um, men who play sports, you know, um, working class men, you know, that they need this training and we as this kind of enlightened people can give it to them. But actually, 
when you get into um when you get into things it's very very complicated and um you know and so the one thing that you know uh, the one thing that i think helps this is you know the um the cup of tea video you know the cup of tea video i've got to say that i've never actually watched it because <laughs> i thought it would make me crazy <laughs> Well, well, interestingly enough, I actually last term taught the woman who came up with the top of tea video originally, and she's very smart and very, um, you know, and we had we had a very interesting conversation about it. She says she would do it really differently now, but um, on one level, I think the cup of tea video is helpful in the sense that it says to us, yes, you know. Our interactions and negotiations around sex and sexuality are social, you know, that sex isn't, you know, in that kind of very basic, you know, for co-premise, sex isn't something different that sits outside the social that can't be touched, you know. So, you know, we can talk about it, for instance, in terms of relating it to a cup of tea. The question then is that it's a very obtuse reading of um the interactions around having a cup of tea to say that consent's very simple and straightforward in that situation, you know, that actually one of the things we can say about that is, you know, all of our social interactions take place within, you know, these relations of power, within, you know, relations of politeness, within gendered relations and conventions in the sense that, you know, if we are talking and I say to you, do you want to have a cup of tea and you don't feel like having a cup of tea, Really, everybody knows it's not as simple as you don't just say no and walk off, you know, or you don't just say no and the conversation keeps going and it's not nothing. You know, actually, many of us, and I speak from personal experiences, have had many cups of tea that we probably didn't really want to have, you know, because <laughs> of the social interactions and the social rituals and all these kinds of things around them. And so in that sense to me, rather than being a lesson in how simple consent is, the cup of tea... It's one of the ways we can start thinking about, you know, how difficult this is. And obviously, like, an unwanted cup of tea is very different to an unwanted sexual experience. And I don't want to trivialize things at all. But, you know, um, we don't drink tea on an enthusiastic consent model, actually, in terms of social rituals. We don't really do anything very much socially on a model of enthusiastic consent, which is not in itself a reason to say that that model, you know, is problematic or wrong, but that it's very difficult, I think, to introduce a whole kind of different form of relating, you know, in an area like sex that's very different to the way that we relate in other areas. I mean, because it's the classic kind of critique. And this is, I know this is, this is, we're always very tangential. I haven't even answered your first question, but, you know, there's a classic critique of the feminist kind of no means no argument, you know, 1970s kind of Western feminism saying, you know, yes means yes and no means no. And then a few years later, people started to say, well, this actually puts this demand on, you know, usually women, you know, but we're demanding people to communicate in this really upfront kind of, you know, and it puts, it kind of imagines this ideal feminist sexual subject, you know, who says what she means and means what she says and is happy and knows what she wants and is quite happy to express that. And so, you know, people don't actually communicate like that. You know, if you look and you do kind of conversational analysis and there are all these interesting feminist linguists who've done this, people will go to great lengths in a conversation to avoid using an outright no. I mean, it's gendered. Women do it more than men, but actually we all do it, you know, particularly in kind of Anglophone cultures, but well, actually not in many, many different cultures. Some cultures, not so much. But 
to then say, okay, so, you know, usually if someone asks you to do something, you don't want to do it, you're much more likely to say something like, "Mm, yeah, I suppose I could, or you'll change the subject or something like that. You know, but then to come into sex and say, no, actually what you're going to do is just say no or yes, um, is good in the sense that, you know, it makes the no or the yes present that actually we need to start thinking in those terms, but it doesn't solve it. And actually, you know, at a basic level, I think moving into kind of, you know, enthusiastic consent and yes means yes doesn't solve it either i mean it's another question that gets opened up and it's another kind of presence that's important to have but it doesn't make it simple and i think that's the thing that there are no simple solutions which Mm. is also the issue with me too is there's no kind of simple analyses um so one of the things that i try and do in my work to go back to this kind of historical thing is say okay you have this real emergence at the beginning of the 1970s of um, feminist activism around rape. And what um, Caitlin Mendes, another woman who works in the UK, calls discursive activism. And what she means by that is that, you know, one of the main goals is to change what's sayable and thinkable around sexual violence. And it's quite interesting if you read kind of original work from the 1970s, like Susan Brown Miller's book Against Our Will, which is often kind of considered like the founding text of second wave feminism around sexual violence. You know, she says that when her consciousness raising group first started talking about it, she didn't want to know. She was just like, why are we talking about this? It's not a feminist issue. You know, it's about sex maniacs and it's a crime and it's got nothing to do with anything. And obviously then, you know, four years later, you know, she goes and writes a book where she says, you know, rape is the feminist issue and it's an issue for all women and all men. But really, you know, it's a huge reconceptualization of what violence is, of what rape is, of what it means. And, you know, at one level, it's almost impossible, I think, to overstate the importance of that in a way. I mean, there have been really fundamental shifts. But at another level, kind of older older truths, older understandings, older myths continue to occur and reoccur. Like to actually like change something once and for good is really difficult. And there's um, there's a quote I really like, and I'm thinking about this because I was writing actually yesterday, um, I was working on a chapter in my book on silence. And um, there's a quote from an activist in the early 1990s and she says something like I'm going to misquote it she says something like you know I now see that my colleagues and I have um been breaking the silence over and over again only to have it swallow us back up again and I think that that's something that is important in terms of this idea of you know speech and speaking out that we have this and it's you know it's optimistic and you know you can see why but this kind of wishful thinking that you know, silence or taboos or, you know, myths or whatever around rape are kind of like this pane of glass and you can just hit it with a hammer and break it, you know, and that's it. And so, and we keep telling ourselves this again and again um, and then it'll be shattered and smashed and you kind of move on. Whereas it's more like, I think it can be more like, you know, throwing a rock in a pond and, you have these kind of upsurges and ripples, you know, and then often they gradually fade away, but they might not fade away so things are completely the same. But the question is, how do you get out 
of that kind of cycle of speech and noticing and forgetting. And I think I think there are things, for instance, about Me Too that are really new and interesting, but there also, and this is, um, you know, in terms of my work, there also are other moments, um, you know, like I just recently published a paper and I think I sent it to you where I talked about like the late 1980s in America was this moment where you had the film The Accused starring Jodie Foster come out. You had um, Susan Estridge who is a feminist author and academic and also a public rape survivor. She was the presidential campaign manager for Michael Dukakis, um, the Democrat candidate in the 1988 election. You know, Kelly McGillis, who's one of the stars of The Accused, spoke about her experience of rape. And you see there, if you go back and actually look at the newspaper and the media coverage around that time, and there were other things happening in Australia and the UK too, but if you think about America, you see all of these kinds of um, headlines and quotes that are quite similar to the headlines and quotes that you see now, you know, Everything has changed. We can never go back. You know, um, this is one of the most influential periods of feminism. And I mean, what's interesting now is generally when people now talk about feminism in the late 1980s, they talk about it in terms of being, you know, a period of backlash. And I mean, one of the things to say, I think, is that it wasn't only and there was a lot of really interesting and important stuff happening there that still had an impact. But um, but we also forget things as well as a culture. And we have a very um, long-standing tendency to kind of have women come and speak over the last 50 years and forever. And even, you know, in the early 1970s, you know, when feminists started holding speakouts, it was really big news. It was covered in Vogue magazine. It was covered in the New York Times. People were like, wow, this is amazing. Um, but you know, that cycle of kind of, wow, women are speaking and then it fades and nothing really happens is a danger. I think, you know, I think it's a risk in terms of Me Too as well um, is, you know, how do you actually transform something from a moment into a real kind of political shift? And I think, you know, the other thing with Me Too that's complicated is that um you know one of the things that people aren't talking about so much although some people are is that it's a little bit kind of I was going to say blurry but it's more complex because it's also a conversation about work you know and um sexual harassment is a kind of gendered phenomenon in work and that's not to say that it should only be that but I think that that's also a really important conversation you know what does it mean to work as a woman and what actually are the impacts of that and you know some of the more kind of again conversations that are bubbling along are you know what are the cumulative impacts of that and it's funny because I was just um I was just working on something the other day and thinking about how you know one of the big backlashes you have around me too is that um Suddenly you have all these people and they're like, oh, you know, what about due process? You know, oh, I really support Me Too, but suddenly we've lost due process because, um, you know, there are all these men. And again, it's very, it's actually very small numbers, but there are these men getting fired and, you know, they haven't been to court and they haven't been through a process. And it's, you know, just the framing of that. And then you have um, 
you know, feminist activists or people who are seen as representatives of feminism either have to come forward and say, you know, oh, well, you know, we don't care or they have to say, oh, no, we do actually care about due process. When to do that misstates the question completely because the, the issue is actually you're talking about something where there has been no due process. You know, we're not, it's not that simply that things were happening and women weren't talking about it and it wasn't having any impact and they were just getting on with their lives. But, you know, women were not progressing in careers. Women were losing jobs. Women were leaving jobs. Women, you know, were not getting jobs in the first place because of these really pervasive, you know, gendered dynamics at work, but there is no process around that. I mean, to me, in terms of sexual harassment, particularly in the workplace, rather than saying, oh, yeah, we're losing due process. I mean, if you want to talk, obviously, there's critiques you can make about due process anyway. But, you know, if we talk about sexual harassment, something like Me Too allows us to open up the conversation and say, you know what, we could actually have an aspiration towards due process here, you know, with, you know, this might enable us to open things up so we could talk about what it would mean to have due process. And by that, we don't mean just for, you know, people accused, but for people experiencing, you know, these particular dynamics for people who have had that be a kind of consistent part of their lives. And, you know, one of the things that we know, and I mean, we knew it before, really. I mean, this is the thing. In a way, um, in a way, phenomena like me to, you know, make visible what is already known. I mean, and this is the thing you see it with a lot of the kind of celebrity things like, you know, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein and things, you know, this was known, at least by the people around it, but it wasn't recognized. And that's a different thing. So it's more a kind of a recognition or forcing things to the realm of the visible than saying, you know, well, we didn't know that sexual harassment was pervasive at work. You know, we is, did. Is this what's kind of important? Like, um, I guess, you know, you, you gave the example before where most people presented with uh, kind of very decontextualized statements about sexual violence appear to be quite progressive, but we know actually that sexual violence is pervasive throughout our society. Is this kind of, you know, things like Me Too or speaking out, does it kind of highlight that difference between like, you know, the official ideology and the subterranean knowledge? And that's somewhat, it's kind of like you know, radical or feminist potential, that it kind of destabilises the distance between those two knowledges? I'm pausing to think about this. <laughs> because it's, it's that thing, it's like, you know, you said like, every, like everyone knew about Bill Cosby or everyone knew about Weinstein or uh, Louis C. Cl you know, Louis C.K. You know, so there's that kind of, you know, official ideology, we say we do, no one tolerates this, but there's the kind of practical knowledge where we people all know it goes on. And then the speaking out, you know, takes that submerged knowledge and makes it public. And that's kind of, it's destabilising capacity. Yeah, no, I think I think that's true. I think that's true. I mean, I I do think as well though that it needs it needs that moment of recognition. I mean, you know, because if you go back to Bill Cosby, I mean, one of the things that um, Barbara Bowman, who's one of um, the women who was assaulted by Bill Cosby, you know, that she says is that 
she's been speaking out about this for a long time. And so have several of the other women, you know, and there's all kinds of things. People are now talking about um, court settlements and talking about, I mean, some of them have been, you know, on network news before have been in magazines like people and things. Um, so I think that speaking out does have the potential to do that, but it doesn't always, you know, that's the thing is people can hear or see things and it can actually make no difference. And so I think, and, 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 you know, this is one of the things, you know, we talked about the question of politics is that's why I think it's actually important that in a sense, I think, and, you know, this is kind of counterintuitive. I think it's important that when we think about, you know, speaking out of feminist politics around sexual violence is we don't just focus on the moment of speech or the act of speech, um, for a whole range of reasons, but one of them is we kind of can have this very heroic myth of, you know, the heroic individual speaker, and you know, and that's a big trope in Western culture, you know, um, who says these things and destabilizes things. But actually, if you go back to what's really crucial about kind of you know early feminism, I think is not so much that women had never said these things before. But what was provided was an audience and a space, you know, of amplification almost, you know, a space of witnessing, as kind of um, people who study trauma and testimony would say, that actually, you know, the audience and the witness and the insistence on recognition and the insistence that this speech has to mean something is what actually becomes very important. So, you know, in a lot of ways, what changes in the 1970s, you know, women do find new ways to talk about things, definitely. They have new meanings that they can make use of. You know, they have new ways to conceptualize things. But there is a space that's carved out in culture and a space for, you know, and in politics, a space for potential change. And that's where you move from, I think, this act of speech just being a kind of, you know, individual thing that can in a lot of, that can in a way, and a lot of people have made this critique, you know, can just be a kind of individual therapy. You know, I talked about this thing and it was really cathartic and I felt better. And, you know, and that's important, obviously. Um, but for that to be a kind of, you know, a moment of politics, for that to be, I mean, you know, if you want to talk about things like Me Too, a reckoning or, you know, even possibly, you know, people use the word revolution, which I think is a little bit, but, you know, a reckoning, say. I mean, actually, it's about the forcing of recognition and that is what destabilizes because you can have speech without that and I think we quite often do. Um, so, you know, with Me Too and, I mean, the history of that and how it emerges, the kind of Harvey Weinstein and then the way it popularizes is quite interesting, but it's not as simple. I don't think it's ever as simple as, you know, and finally there were these, you know, one or two or three individual women who decided that they weren't going to take it anymore and they spoke up and then society listened. Um, you know, that's part of it, but just to do that doesn't actually necessarily lead to recognition or lead to change. It's much more kind of complex. And I think the collective moment has to do with a commitment to listening and a commitment to recognizing and, you know, 
and ultimately a commitment to, you know, staying with things and turning them into something else and doing something with them, you know. And in that sense, I think, um, you know, around Me Too, like what I actually – because at first with Me Too, I was like, oh, well, you know, this is just going to be another hashtag um, because there's been a bunch, you know. I mean, online feminism – is obviously a big thing and one of the biggest things that it talks about is sexual violence. So, you know, before the Me Too hashtag, there was hashtag, sorry, there was, you know, the not okay hashtag in response to Donald Trump. There's been the yes or women hashtag. There have been hashtags around people have tweeted, you know, what they were wearing the first time they were sexually assaulted. And quite often, you know, these hashtags trend and they get some media coverage and then they seem to just kind of recede and then the next one will happen and you'll get the same kind of media coverage. Oh, this is amazing. You know, this is unprecedented. And, um, you know, as with social media generally, it can be an acceleration, I guess, of that kind of cycle of speech and then not speech and speech and not speech. But, you know, with me too, it does seem like more and more people, or at least some people have been asking those questions about what it means and what it can mean. And I mean, you know, I, the most kind of prominent example is, you know, the Time's Up initiative, which is very much about harassment and work. And, you know, it comes from a very, you know, I suppose liberal feminist perspective, but is interesting, I think, in that, you know, it's then about, you know, money and organising around workplace culture and it's gotten a lot of kind of, you know, celebrities involved but also looked at industries outside of Hollywood Oh, see, I knew, I knew I was always like, I was like, oh, this podcast is going to be a disaster because I'm really immersed in writing these things. So every question you ask me, I end up talking for 20 minutes. No, no, it's fantastic. No, no, it's really, it's fantastic. It's like, the thing for me is it's just like, um, like just to take it like a step back though, like when you're talking about the emergence of, um, say, speaking out about sexual violence and rape in the 70s, like to my kind of potted history, that takes place in like the context of a pretty rich and expanding feminist movement right yeah. so mm -hmm. and it's like my and tell me if i'm wrong here but my understanding was like the speaking out was also tied around attempts to change the law so like to criminalize rape in marriage also like the establishment of kind of domestic violence services that were often feminist and autonomously run and also like a kind of movement of countless women leaving shitty relationships like like the speech seem to be kind of embedded far more in like what I understand as broader collective activity. Does that make sense? And yeah. And then then I guess like I'm I was reading like your paper about the eighties and the thing that was so interesting about that is, and tell me if I've got your argument wrong, like it, it's saying that, you know, we normally understand the 80s as a period of reaction against feminism, but actually mm -hmm. around questions of sexual violence, it's probably where feminism goes further. But what it's able to do is to combine these like um, individual stories and sometimes it's other people like journalists and official experts telling people's individual stories, but they kind of map over what was already the kind of already existing discourses, I guess. Yeah. And you use yeah. this term, which I'd never encountered before, which is remediation. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, and hopefully, well, we'll see who listens to that. Yes, remediation is interesting. Actually, it was a special issue about remediation, and I didn't really know what the term meant until I started writing the paper. So I had to kind of... um. Or well, maybe you should cut that bit out. But anyway, um, 
Um, no, it is. So, so remediation is actually a very useful concept, I think. And, but I suppose I would say it doesn't only apply to the late 80s, but also to the 70s. So I'll talk about that in a second. But basically what, um, what the term remediation means is when you try to do this, and I talked about this idea of discursive activism before, but if you're trying to change kind of the way people understand social phenomena, how they think about them, how they talk about them, Basically, you've got to work with people's existing understandings, you know, and attempt to kind of rewrite them or reconfigure them. You can't just, you know, and this is a point that in a lot of different ways, a lot of, I suppose, kind of, you know, critical theorists would make. It's it's almost impossible just to kind of make something completely new. I mean, the the elements have to be there, you know, and it's a little bit, I mean, Marx has a quote, you know, that people always talk about, which is kind of in, the, in a way the same thing is, you know, that you can't actually completely, you know, name the problem or you can't imagine, you know, communism or the coming world, you know, if there's no elements in place in order to do so, you know, that you've got to, in a sense, be able to reconfigure and rework what's already there. Um, and part of the difficulty with that is, you know, particularly when you're talking about things like sex and intimacy, people's beliefs around that are very strong and very deep. And there's a lot of kind of very embedded um, social truths and social myths. And so those kinds of beliefs can keep popping up in a way or can keep, can overtake what you are doing. So, I mean, so the question of law reform is interesting because when you know, feminists started speaking out about rape in the early 1970s, you know, one of the things that was so appealing about it politically to people, you know, and again, this is, you know, this is very kind of as well broad kind of history, is that it was this idea that it was an issue that could unite all women, you know, because obviously one of the historical um struggles or difficulties of feminism has been around this, you know, idea of universal experiences of womanhood and the fact that they're always um, maybe fractured is too strong, but, you know, that being a woman is different dependent on class, race, ability, you know, all these things. That, But the idea at the beginning for many feminists was it will benefit all women, for instance, if we change rape laws, you know, because in this situation, you know, all women experience sexual violence, so all women would benefit from the criminal justice system taking sexual violence more seriously. Now, in a very kind of early and still very important critique of this early feminist politics, Angela Davis, you know, who is an important kind of Marxist and anti-prison activist in the US, um, wrote an article and it's called, and again, I'm not very good with the exact wording, but it's called Rape, Racism and the Myth of the Black Rapist. And in that, I mean, she's mainly talking actually about Susan Brown Miller's book, but she's making a broader critique about kind of mainstream feminist politics around rape. She says that the kind of mainstream feminist movement in the US, you know, even as talking about sexual violence is really important and is doing these really important things, is at the same time complicit in reproducing these racist myths that you have around um, 
what yeah what she labels the myth of the black rapist this idea that black men are sexually predatory they're sexually violent and you know that they're a particular danger to kind of you know innocent and virginal white womanhood and so she talks about how this is a recurrent trope through history and this is one of the things that you know feminists have had to deal with is it's very common to say oh well Rape has always been taboo. No one's ever taken it seriously. Actually, you know, in particular circumstances, it's always been considered to be, you know, a particular heinous crime is the language of the law. And, you know, if you're talking about the history of the US as we are, the allegation that a black man raped a white woman is taken very seriously and has been, you know, almost from the beginning of, you know, the establishment of the country and is is an allegation that has quite often met with either legal or extra legal, um, you know, in the form of lynching, killing. Um, and so this point about remediation, you know, at one level, I mean, Angela Davis obviously doesn't talk in those terms, but she says, you know, this is a danger. And actually, so to talk about rape and the criminal justice system means completely different things in that context for um, for white women and for black women because for black women it does mean on the one hand, you know, a history of sexual violence, you know, often at the hands of white men but also within African-American communities and I'm just talking about this example specifically but it also means, you know, one of the mechanisms for the racist and the racialized policing of African-American communities. And Kristen Boomiller has written about this again very recently. You know, she talks about how right from the beginning, the kind of failure of second wave feminism to adequately deal with these existing kind of, you know, criminal justice biases around rape and sexual violence has allowed feminist politics around rape to be incorporated into, you know, particularly from the 1990s onwards, this growing kind of what people sometimes call penal populism, you know, the increase in policing, in arrests, you know, the growth of mass incarceration in the US. And this disproportionately obviously targets communities of colour and in the US particularly African-American communities. Um, so... To come back to what you're saying, you know, yes, I think there's a big difference between the 1970s and the late 1980s in terms of that wider feminist politics. And actually, you know, rape law reform was very controversial in the 1970s, you know, because there were groups of feminist activists who were just like, you know, we don't want to be strengthening the criminal justice system. This is not what we want. Um, and that history also kind of faded a bit. So the idea that... Um, feminists would you know campaign for rape law reform and would campaign for things like increased sentences and things like that is taken for granted a lot more now than it was at the beginning of feminist campaigns around rape when there were a lot of debates about it but um the kind of danger that at the same time that you challenge some kind of i suppose regressive social myths you can inadvertently find yourself reproducing or able to be co-opted by others, I think is a part of this history because actually, you know, ideas around crime and the law and criminal justice system and also, you know, the social realities of that 
are very important and very difficult to um, and very difficult to resist. I mean, it's very difficult to engage with the criminal justice system without doing what Carol Smart says that you end up doing, which is extending the imperialist reach of the law, you know, empowering the criminal justice system to do what it does, which is ultimately, you know, a repressive function of the state. So that was part one. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. Uh, If you'd like to, you know, have some discussion about it, please join our Facebook group, look for Living the Dream Podcast, or hit me up at Twitter, at With Sober Senses. I'll probably have part two ready to go in about a week from now. All right, enjoy your day or evening, wherever you are.